0: Wonderful Thanksgiving, as Mr. Ames mentioned. It interesting the way he phrased it. He said he hoped you all had a good Thanksgiving and a thoughtful Thanksgiving. I thought that was that is something to ponder. We do have a number of uh, number of countries around the world celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, I just looking at a quick list on Wikipedia, the answer of information and knowledge of all things. You know. Uh, Canada, Germany, Japan, Brazil, Liberia are some of the countries that keep Thanksgiving in one way or another. Prager University, <clears throat> those of you who have, who have uh, seen some videos from Prager University before, there is an interesting video recently posted entitled, What's the Truth About the First Thanksgiving? And it might be worth a, a look. It's uh, fascinating, uh, especially because the author makes the connection, the possible connection that the pilgrims were feasting around the time of the biblical holy, holy days so called Sukkot and uh, a Feast of Tabernacles. We know it's a little bit later than uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, but uh, interesting. Just sort of a tangent connection that the author made about that. <clears throat> In the sermon today, I'm going to do a little bit more reading, I think, than normal, uh, because there are some historical elements that I think are are helpful to understand and preserve and frankly have a more of a connection to us than it first might uh, seem. Here is the account of the pilgrims who uh, came to the new world or rather as they saw themselves the separatists. They didn't call themselves pilgrims. I think most of us know that. Uh, That that came later. But they they called themselves separatists and were called by others separatists uh, because of their desire to separate themselves from the Church of England. And I want to read a little bit from a a uh, textbook on American literature from that time period in the 1600s. The author says this, that, that small band of religious dissenters or separatists had fled first from their homes in England to Holland in 1608. They had wanted to break completely away from the Church of England to end all ties with a church they believed to be fatally mired in Romanism or Roman Catholicism and corrupt beyond redemption. Their fervid desire to separate entirely from, quote, that mass of old and stinking works, end quote, their words. Their English church, that's how they described the English church, brought them the name separatists. And their pious refusal to bend to the will of their English king and the laws of his English church stirred the religious and civil persecution that finally drove them from their homeland. Holland had long been a haven for religious refugees, and when the English separatists arrived, the Dutch welcomed them as devout and hardworking people. But the separatists soon grew dissatisfied with their life in, quote, Dutch exile. Sinking in poverty, fearing they would lose their identity and be swallowed up in the dominant Dutch culture, they decided to leave Holland on a pilgrimage to America. They were seeking a place to worship God. And I think most of us understand that and and believe that. Uh, But, you know, there are revisionists today. There are people who are trying to rewrite history and really sort of downplay the aspect of religion that really was a big part of uh, many of those who came to this country in the very beginning. Uh, William Bradford was a founder and longtime governor of the Plymouth Colony Settlement. Uh, He lived from 1590 to 1657. He was born in England. He migrated with the Separatist congregation to the Netherlands as a teenager. And then later, uh, of course, was a governor of Plymouth Plantation. And he wrote this. At length, after much travel and these debates, all things were got ready and provided. This was when they were still in Holland. A small ship was bought and fitted in Holland, which was intended as to serve to help to transport them so to stay in the country and attend upon fishing and other such affairs as might be for the good and benefit of the colony when they came there. Another was hired in London, and all other things got in readiness. So being ready to depart, they had a day of solemn humiliation, their pastor taking his text from Ezra 8 and verse 21. You remember when Ezra was about to leave with the exiles coming back from Babylon, they, they chose to fast and pray asking God's protection. And it, it sort of gives you a glimpse of how these people saw the Bible and how they looked to the Bible. Were they, were they part of the true church of God? Did they know all the elements of the truth? No. But in as much as what they, they understood, they, 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 had, they held the Bible and they held God in, in honor and esteem. How did they see their coming to America? Bradford wrote this. It was, quote, for the propagating and advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ to parts of the world. Yea, though they should be, but be stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. Interesting phrase back in 16-whatever-it-was, 22, that they might just be stepping stones for others, for the work. Were they perhaps stepping stones in more ways than they could possibly be imagined? Just a thought. You know, there are others who came to this country as well for the purpose of propagating what they understood to be the gospel. Um, in 1989, two lecturers and teachers and proponents of the, let's say, the preservation of the religious element of America's past wrote the book America's Providential History. In it, they tell the story of the founding of this of this country and how much uh, the founding of America was, was really based on the, the ideal and the, the desire to have a religious expression. Tells the story of the pilgrims also of Jamestown, Virginia, uh, the first permanent settlement in America uh, back in sixteen oh seven. And I'd like to read a little bit from page page number eighty of this book. The Virginia Charter of sixteen oh six reveals that part of the reason, their reason, the, the first uh people to Jamestown Part of their reason for coming to America was to propagate the, quote, Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, end quote. In 1611, the colonists themselves wrote America's first civil document that was similar to the Constitution. That same year, the Reverend uh, Alexander Whitaker built Virginia's second church in Henrico, and preached a famous sermon entitled Good News from Virginia that encouraged Europeans to colonize America for the glory of God. He performed the celebrated marriage of John Rolfe and the Indian princess Pocahontas. Actually, uh, a side note, actually uh, Alexander Whitaker is a uncle of ours with with a lot of greats in front of it, you know. Um, But he is a brother to one of... Uh, my, my dad's, uh, on my, his mother's side, his uh, mother's mother was a Whitaker. And uh, the, the, it, the, there's a little bit of controversy in this story, uh, whether he married John Rolfe and Pocahontas, there's some debate about that, but there are records of him baptizing Pocahontas, so... Uh, Of course, he was Anglican, so he didn't baptize her the right way. But regardless, that's a a little bit of fun family history. And uh, with that, you know, it's of no value to you, unless you're on Jeopardy sometime. Maybe they'll ask that question. But anyway, the point is that um, when people came to this country, uh, they were striving to express their religious uh, Devotion to God and to the Bible. Were they true Christians? No. We understand that. But to the degree that they understood, they were honoring God and the Bible. It was a big motivation. Now, with that said, I think what's also interesting for the story of Thanksgiving and its story of of what we're talking about today is that what we think of as freedom of religion today was not necessarily the norm back then. In many places, in the colonies even, these writers who wrote the book I was just referring to, they explain how in the southern colonies, the main uh, settlers were Episcopalian. In the northern colonies, they were congregational. In the middle colonies, they were mainly Presbyterians. And all too often, those who were outsiders were not treated well. Those who who were not according to the norm were harassed. Some colonies even had a state religion, which is what they had been trying to get away from in some cases. And yet then they imposed their own on others. So, was there really religious freedom as we would understand it, by and large, in the colonies? Again, not in the way that that we would understand it to be today. Which is why it's so interesting what happened in a handful of places that did allow religious freedom in the very writing of their charter like Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Rhode Island was founded by Roger Williams in 1636. He was a Puritan minister in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but had fled to, had to flee from Massachusetts when his teachings did not correspond to their liking. And he founded Rhode Island to be a place where people could truly practice their faith according to their conscience. Rhode Island was not always looked favorably upon in those early days. Here's a description from one contemporary writer in the book Sabbath and Sectarianism in 17th century England. Uh, The writer says this, Rhode Island is a chaos of all religions. It is the asylum for all those that are disturbed for heresy. A hive of hornets. That was the original hornet's nest, right? and the sink into which all the rest of the colonies empty their heretics. It is the receptacle of all sorts of riffraff people and is nothing else than the sewer of New England. All the cranks of New England retire thither. Brethren, guess where God planted the true church? In the sewer of New England. Because that colony allowed it. Now again, take a step back and think, which philosophy did the nation eventually adopt? That of Massachusetts? That of some of the other of the colonies that were more or less stricter about their particular brand of religion? Or was it Rhode Island? We take religious freedom for granted. We get up every day and we, we know we're going to be able to express our freedom in a certain way. We know we're going to be able to come to worship today without harassment. But it wasn't a foregone conclusion. If the United States were run like many of the colonies of the 17th century... We'd be the outsiders, and we'd be harassed, and life would be very difficult. Was God's hand guiding some of those early settlers like the pilgrims? Absolutely. But perhaps, as they even said, as Bradford said, as a stepping stone for others who would come later and take a different direction, but have the freedom to take that direction. Enter another character in the story, Stephen Mumford. he was the first recorded Sabbath keeper in North America that we have record of. He came from England to America in sixteen sixty four uh, You can read about him in the in Ivor Fletcher's book The Incredible History of God's True Church on page one ninety five and brethren, if you haven't read this, or skimmed it, or at least browsed through it. Please do so. And if you don't have a copy, I think we have have more in in uh, at headquarters. If you don't have one, this was handed out some years ago to every every one of us. But tremendous resource about the history of the church. Um, he talks about Stephen Mumford. Uh, where did he go? He went to Rhode Island from English, uh, from England. Sorry. He introduced the seven-day Sabbath to some Baptists there in Newport, and several accepted the Sabbath and began attending with him. Now, where did he come from? Did he just appear out of thin air, this Stephen Mumford? No, he was a Sabbath keeper in England, and there were a number of congregations there at the time in the 1600s. In fact, so many that there were a number of times when the government had to had to issue certain proclamations against the Sabbath because it was becoming so widely known. And they had to try to to stamp it out. In fact, uh, when Stephen Mumford came here, he was sent by one of those congregations. He was sent by the Bell Lane Church, Sabbath-keeping church in London. And they had correspondence back and forth as he was uh, uh, beginning to... Uh, to, to spread the truth about the Sabbath. Uh, but I want to also just give you a little bit of a glimpse of what it was like for Sabbath keepers in England at that time, in the middle 1600s. Mr. Fletcher writes on page 196 uh, under the heading Religious Freedom in America. And he's quoting a book called The Times of Stephen Mumford by a na- man named James McGeechey. This uh, this fellow wrote, There is no doubt that Stephen Mumford decided to migrate across the Atlantic Ocean because of the difficult circumstances in which not only the Seventh-day Baptists but other Baptists and dissenters found themselves in, in England at the time. They hoped to find greater freedom overseas. The Conventicle Act of 1664 forbade the assembly of more than five people in addition to the family of the house for religious services, except according to the prayer book, under penalty of fines and transportation. For the third offense, they could be banished to the American plantations. If they should return or escape, death was the penalty. Many were sent to the West Indies, where they endured great hardship. Vast numbers suffered in all parts of England and Wales. It is said that 8,000 perished in prison during the days of Charles II. It may have been this act which led Stephen Mumford to decide to migrate to Rhode Island to banish himself by so doing rather than wait for the government to do it. What's the point? Religious freedom that we enjoy was not a foregone conclusion. Even though there were Sabbath-keeping churches in England, they were increasingly harassed. In the middle 1600s, but America, and a few places like Rhode Island, became a haven where people went. You know, if we look down through history, through the centuries, and we understand this, lack of religious freedom has been the rule rather than the exception, hasn't it? It doesn't take that much to see how most people down through time, have not had the, the luxuries that we enjoy, that we take for granted, the ability to worship God as we choose, as our conscience dictates, in peace. What we're living in right now is an incredibly unique anomaly in history. Brethren, I think that's important to really sit back and think. About that, even when you compare Rhode Island with Massachusetts or other places in in the colonies at that time. So, what's significance about all of this? Again, as we uh, worship God in in this country and in countries around the world, we have members in eighty-seven different countries around the world today in Living Church of God, and many nations today grant religious freedom as an outgrowth of what God did with the Israelite nations and really because of God's promises to Abraham which have benefited the whole world and so we enjoy religious freedom and we're benefited by it. But brethren are we here just to use those words again to enjoy religious freedom? Is that why God has given us The ability to be here today to enjoy, just to enjoy, sort of passively, just to feel it for ourselves? Or is this miracle that a pocket of religious freedom anywhere on earth has happened, when we compare it with all of history, very few times? when God's people have had the freedom to do that. Of course, under David and Solomon and others, we understand that they had a whole lot more freedom. But is there something expected of us in return because of the freedom we have? I've taken a lot of time to get to my title, and here it is. The land of the free... And the home of the work. The land of the free and the home of the work. You know, the last line of our American national anthem says, Oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? But for the sake of this message, brethren, let's change that last line slightly. That this is the land of the free and the home of the work. Why are we here? What are we doing in this place? What led us to this moment in time? Are we here as a part of a grand plan that has been being worked out for many generations? And what about our brothers and sisters around the world who are also meeting in peace without disturbance today is there a reason why they are willing are, are able to worship god in peace as well is there something that we all are supposed to do with that freedom let's turn over to galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, were we in this country of America given a special and unique and miraculous amount of freedom so God could plant his work here, brethren, and it could grow and it could prosper and it could spread around the world to this day. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. I know Paul is talking about a different issue here. He's talking about circumcision and or not circumcised, being not circumcised. But I want to use this to illustrate a point we're talking about today. Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As we heard in this sermonette today. If we have been called to liberty in, in terms of religious freedom, what are we using it for? Just to feed ourselves? Just to enjoy it? Or are we supposed to be doing something with it? Deuteronomy chapter 33. Let's go over there. Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse, verse 1. It is speaking of the blessings that were, were promised for Joseph. An end time prophecy of, of Joseph in particular. He says in verse... Uh, let's, let's drop down to verse 13. Blessed of the Lord is his land. He's speaking of Joseph. With the precious things of heaven. With the dew and the deep line beneath. With the precious fruits of the sun. The f- produce of the month. Verse 15. With the best things of the ancient mountains. With the precious things of the everlasting hills. Verse 16, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Speaking of the bounty of the seas and the lakes and the oceans and the fields and the crops and the minerals that these whoever these people are were given. Verse 17, his glory is like a... Firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox together with him. He shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. He would be given power and military strength to project that power, to protect that wealth, but also to protect a certain amount of religious expression. But there's more. Genesis 18 and verse 19 let's let's go back here genesis chapter 18 and verse 19 here god is working with uh, abraham and he's <clears throat> abraham is interceding about sodom and uh the, the eternal says verse 17 genesis 18 shall i hide from abraham what i'm doing since abraham shall become surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him we we see this a number of times and certainly uh the biggest representation of that is the savior Jesus Christ who came through the line of Abraham but but the world has been blessed in other ways through the faith of Abraham through the the faithfulness of God toward his his faithful servant, and the blessings that he promised. Verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. In other words, he knew Abraham so that he would command his children after him, In other words, Abraham's descendants were expected to preserve the truth and to transmit the truth. And that's exactly what they've done. You know, even many of our laws, some don't like to admit it, but our culture, our laws, our society is filled with the underpinnings of the Bible. Why do we have laws About putting up a fence around your swimming pool Why are you responsible if someone else comes through your yard and falls in your pool and there's no fence and they drown? Why are you responsible? That's a biblical principle God spoke of putting a railing around your flat roof if you have a flat roof and people go up there So they don't fall off and you're responsible if you don't Why do we have bankruptcy laws that? permit a, a sort of a redo if if you get in a really bad spot and you can't get out well the the year of release we find in deuteronomy chapter 15 every seven years there was a a provision for those who could not and in the the uh, jubilee as well for those who could not get out of debt to be released wouldn't that be nice if you could call your credit card company and If they would believe in that statute today, not quite, not yet. Why have there been laws against homosexuality and adultery in America, at least up to the last few decades? It's found in the Bible. Now, again, I'm not saying that America was just like the nation of Israel under David or Solomon or some of the other righteous men. who who led the nation in in righteous worship of the true God, keeping the Sabbath and the Holy Days. But what I am saying is God led events to go forward in a particular way to prepare America in particular, in particular, with financial blessings and at least a certain amount of respect for God in the Bible. Why is that? Why is that? Why did God bless this nation so much? Well, I submit to you, I think there are two reasons. Number one, go over to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 15. The first is Abraham obeyed God's voice. And God promised it. We find here... Genesis chapter 22 and verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, because you have done this thing, have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You know, we find other places about those nations that bless Jacob will be blessed. Those that curse Jacob will be cursed. And again, the ultimate, the the biggest blessing is the Savior, that through Abraham's line, Jesus Christ was born. But there are so many blessings that the whole world benefits Today, from even materially... <clears throat> Let me read a little bit from a writer and CNN commentator, Fareed Zachariah, uh, in his book a few years ago called The Post-American World. He said this, For almost three centuries, the world has been undergirded by the presence of a large liberal hegemon, first Britain, then the United States. These two superpowers helped create and maintain an open-world economy, protecting trade routes and sea lanes, acting as lenders of last resort, holding the reserve currency, investing abroad, and keeping their own markets open. They also tipped the military balance against the great aggressors of their ages, from Napoleon's France to Germany to the Soviet Union. In 2006 and 2007, listen to this, 124 countries around the world grew at a rate of 4% or more. That includes more than 30 countries in Africa, two-thirds of the continent. And he's directly connecting it to the policies and the financial blessings of Britain and, and America. Because he says this, For all its abuses of power, The United States has been the creator and sustainer of the current order of open trade and democratic government, an order that has been benign and beneficial for the vast majority of humankind. And this is not from someone who is considered a sort of uh, a conservative writer. This is someone who is more on the liberal side, and yet he's saying, look, we can't deny it. That the policies of, the, of America have benefited the whole world. That's one reason why we can see that God blessed this nation because Abraham obeyed his voice. Not because we're so smart, not because we're better than anybody else, but because God prom- promised the blessings to Abraham and we're the re- recipients. And the whole world, by indirectly, has also uh, benefited. What's the second reason? I think the second reason why God blessed this nation so much is to do the work. To do the work. Is it egocentric to consider that God would create a climate That in the end time leading up to Christ's return would include a land that would have the financial resources and the religious freedom to become the engine of a great publishing work to prepare the world for Christ's return. Have we had a sort of open door, brethren, because, in this work, because of the blessings to Abraham let's let's look over to 1st Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9 speaking of doors <clears throat> the New Testament speaks of doors opening as opportunities to do the work and Paul uh, refers to it in a number of ways here and I think it's uh, instructive and inspiring to look at how he used it first 1st uh, Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9 he was speaking to the brethren in Corinth, and in verse 8 he says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, look, there's a lot going on. I can't leave now. I'm planning to leave in a few months, but I've, I've got to stay here for the time being. There's a door open. And he used that metaphor of a door being open, and I've got to walk through it. There's a window of opportunity. We use that metaphor. There's something happening and God has opened that door. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Here's another reference. He said verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Interesting, a door was opened to me by the Lord. If you remember back to the story in the book of Acts, Paul was wanting to go to another part of Asia. And it says the Holy Spirit forbade him. And then he wanted to go to Bithynia, another part in that northern Turkey area. And he was also forbade, forbade, forbade to go to that area. And then he had a dream. And he said there was a man from Macedonia saying, Come on over here. Come help us. And he recognized the door was shut in these other places, but opening in Macedonia. So he crossed over. The, the word door is really interesting when we look at the New Testament. Because when there's a chance to spread the gospel, it's like Christ has opened a door. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Have we had an open door in recent history? We'll answer that in a moment. <clears throat> First, I think it's, it's helpful to just briefly review a little bit of Revelation 2 and 3. We find seven churches. What do they represent? Well, certainly the, the seven congregations that John was writing to at the time that John was writing this book. We also understand it's, it's warnings and admonitions for all Christians at all times. Every admonition at the end says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. But often overlooked, even by many in the greater church of God today, is that the seven churches of Revelation are eras. Church eras. They would be successive eras or time periods of church history. The message to Ephesus, primarily for the age of the apostles and those who outlived them. The message to Smyrna, primarily for those of the 3rd and 4th century. To Pergamos, those living in the 5th century to roughly the 10th century. These are wide generalizations, but, you know, roughly those time periods. The message to Thyatira, the 10th century to the 1500s. The message to Sardis, the 1600s to the 1800s. The message to Philadelphia, the 1900s, roughly. And Laodicea, we would have to conclude, is after Mr. Armstrong's death, roughly. Let's read about the fourth era for a couple of minutes here. And Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. Revelation 2 and verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols now who was this well we understand from uh, the book uh, the god's church through the ages mr o'gwin wrote this some years back and if you haven't read this or haven't read it recently please pull it up and and look it over again very very helpful and very important we understand who we are and who were God's people in different time periods. But we understand these were roughly the Waldensians in the Middle Ages. They lived in southern France, northern Italy, in the mountains. They had to flee to the mountains because of persecution. We had a a field trip recently. Uh, The living education students uh, and some of us, they let tag along. Uh, went to Valdez, North Carolina, a few days ago, about a week or so ago. And Valdez is named after the Waldensians, and there was in the 1800s a group of the descendants of the Waldensians who moved to North Carolina in the in the 1800s, and they have a a, a replicas of some of the houses that were built back there in Europe and caves that they worshipped in, in, for example, because of persecution because they didn't have the right to to worship openly. And uh, it's quite interesting. But did these people know they were a part of the true church? Well, here's what the old Ambassador College correspondence course said in Lesson 51, page 13. On the Waldensian emblem or seal were seven stars. And by the way, when we went up there, they have a number of places where that seal is displayed. In those replicas of the Waldensian homes you know, in, in Valdese, uh, North Carolina. On the Waldensian emblem or seal were seven stars directly below and pointing at the fourth star was a lighted lamp representing the then active Thyatira Church. Around the rim was the Latin motto Lux, Lucet, in Tenebris. A light shines in darkness. God's people knew. They were the Thyatira church. The emblem had a candle in the middle, had seven stars around that candle. Now, symbols mean something, don't they? Why did they pick seven stars, you know, back in the 1100s or 1200s, whenever that emblem was made? And why is the candle pointing straight up at the fourth star right in the middle? representing the fourth era of God's church. And why is it a candle? When you read in Revelation 1 and 2, you read that each church was represented by a lampstand. Well, interesting to think about. Mr. O'Gwen goes on to explain in, in the booklet, God's Church Through the Ages, that many Waldensians, to avoid persecution later on, as time went on, because they were running for their lives and hiding in the mountains, over time, some allowed their children to be christened. Some allowed their families to take part in Catholic worship services. And he's talking about that in Revelation 2:18 that some of them were allowing themselves to be corrupted. They they felt like, well, as long as I believe on the inside, it doesn't matter. I, 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 I understand that this is a false worship, and it means nothing to me. So as long as I believe the right thing in my heart, it doesn't matter if I go through the motions with pagan Christians. And yet we find that Christ was not happy about that, and... And uh, many, many suffered horribly because of their compromise. Now let, let's look at Revelation chapter three. The point is, in that time, in Thyatira, there there were many who heroically were trying to spread the gospel and risk their lives, and many. True Church of God members who died risking their lives trying to preserve and spread the gospel and yet very little of a door was was open, you you might say, in, in that respect compared to today. Don't you think? How many of us have risked our lives lately just for our faith? Maybe some around the world in different situations, but... Very different time we're living in. Notice in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has had the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. You get a very different sense Of the Philadelphian era. You get a sense of a door opening. You get a sense of an opportunity to do a work like had not been done for a couple thousand years. That's why it's so important for us to understand church eras. We know our history and we also understand who we are today because there's a remnant. That is continuing to go through this door, but we're getting ahead of our story. What happened in the 20th century? What happened in the 1900s? What happened in 1933? Sorry, 1927, when Mr. Armstrong was was challenged on the Sabbath, and finally was convinced that this is what the Bible t- taught. And then in 1933, he began broadcasting on radio. Why? Was it at that time? Why was radio just starting to really come into its own? Is it a coincidence that it was right at that time when Mr. Armstrong started to broadcast? Or did God work that out? Mr. Fletcher talks in his book of the astonishing success of the work in the 20th century. Read it for yourself. At the height of the work on Mr. Armstrong, the Plain Truth magazine was going out to about 6 million people each issue. You know, I did a little comparison, and as far as I can tell, back around that time in the late 80s, Time magazine had a circulation of about 4.7 million. Now, I understand that was a weekly magazine, but the Plain Truth had 6 million do we comprehend the door that was open at that time? Or sometimes is it just like, you know, it's, it, it becomes just blasé. Mr. Wayne Pyle, who, who took care of and uh, in, was involved in keeping the statistics in living before his death, and uh, back in Worldwide he was involved in that. From his research, we have other statistics. Over a three-month period around the early part of 1987, over 200,000 phone calls came in as as a result of the television program. Three-month period, 200,000 responses, 28,000 letters over the same period. Early in 1989, just before things began to decline, In a three month period, over 30,000 people enrolled in the correspondence course. Three months, 30,000 people signed up for it. In 1988, almost 2.5 million names were added to the mailing list that year. Mr. Armstrong met a whole host of world leaders during his life. How did that happen? And why? I mean, how do you get a meeting with the president of Egypt or the premier of China? How do you work that out when no other, as I understand it, no other leader of any church organization had ever been able to, had ever been invited to see the premier of China at that time? The king of Thailand, the the parliament of Japan, whatever. Go through the list in his book. It is astonishing did Christ open that door. And after Mr. Armstrong's death, his successors piece by piece dismantled it until what he built was demolished. But what is happening today? No, we don't have the scope that Mr. Armstrong had. We don't have the reach that he had. But the door is still open. It may not be as wide as it was back then. But it's still open. Two of the most recent Tomorrow's World programs, Evolution on Trial by Mr. Weston, garnered 3,141 responses. Unlocked Bible Prophecy by Mr. Smith garnered 3,957 responses. It's not 15 or 20,000 like I remember when I was a teenager and I heard the announcements of how many people responded. But it's two or 3,000. And you know, just about every week, almost half of those people who respond are brand new responders. In other words, have never, ever ordered any literature before. So that's a 1,000 or 1,500 people or so every week. Brand new to our mailing list. You know, think back to the feast, when you were at the feast. If you went to some of our largest sites, there might have been seven or 800 people there. Well, imagine that room, and now double it, and that's how many people are being added to the mailing list each week. Why? Because they voluntarily write in, and they want information. They're excited about the message, and they want to learn more. Is the work, is the door closed? I think not. We have some other interesting statistics. Today, the the telecast airs on 124 TV and radio stations worldwide. On YouTube, we've now reached almost 11.1 million views on our English language Tomorrow's World Channel. Spanish is 24 million views. Uh, Ezekiel's Message Unlocked received more than 3 million views on YouTube. The viewpoint program on where are the Celts has received more than 575,000 views. Brethren, is there still a door open? The whiteboard on the timeline explaining three days and three nights has 378,000 views. Since 2006, we've conducted... Over 1,100 Tomorrow's World presentations. We've sent out over a million invitations. Almost 30,000 people have attended in person those presentations. And did you know that our personal correspondence department, which is basically Mr. Amen, and a few others more recently, but basically Mr. Amen, From 2004 to 2018, responded to 55,788 emails, hard mail, Facebook requests, and phone calls. Is the work over? 55,000 personal correspondence department responses. Are people still looking for answers? Since the Living Church of God began in late 1998, more than 5,800 individuals in 72 countries have been baptized. One other thing, when we look at the roles on the church today in in the living church of God, we have brethren attending in, in what, 87 countries or so around the world. 6,092 of them live in the United States. 6,212 of them live outside of the United States. Put another way, about half of our brethren live in 86 countries around the world, and the other half live in the United States. Now think about that for a moment. Does that mean anything? Not that... Those of us who live in America are better. No, on the contrary, I just want to point out to show that America has a unique place in the world to be the engine of the work and a unique responsibility in the world. Because of our tremendous material wealth, and the extreme religious freedom that we have enjoyed that is not always the case in other countries this is where the work started was planted and grew and has spread all over the world and there are countries today that are robust and self-sufficient and are able to sustain the work in their country or area or region but In many cases, the U.S. supports financially the poorer countries around the world because of the financial blessings given to the children of Abraham. Brethren, we may sometimes not think of this time being special because to us it feels like it always has been this way. We have always enjoyed religious freedom for our lifetimes, but this is a unique time and unique place in history. Is that door going to be open forever? You know, Mr. Weston has been focusing on some of the trends that are coming our way, that are trying to limit our ability to speak freely about the truth. Mr. Weston mentioned in an article, Tomorrow's World, July-August 2018, Why Free Speech Matters. He says, some erroneously think we at Tomorrow's World spend too much time talking about political correctness, LGBT issues, bathroom bills, and the like, that we should only focus on the gospel as they view it. They are naive. The gospel of the kingdom of God calls for people to repent of behaviors that are contrary to God's ways. These issues should concern every morally sound person and they affect our ability to preach the truth of the Bible to a chaotic world. Without freedom of speech, we cannot sound the alarm and call on people to repent. How right and wrong are defined is at the core of repentance. At some point, is it going to be illegal to preach from the Bible? Some want it that way. And that's the direction it's going. And it really shouldn't come as a surprise. Because as our morals fail in this land, our material blessings are going to decline. And our freedoms are going to be limited. So that is the direction. So what do we do? Call your congressman right away, right? just wanted to see if you all were listening. Is that what we do? Do we get involved? Do we get politically active? Do we, do we start, you know, sending around, um, try to, to, to gain support for, uh, you know, upholding the Constitution? Will the Constitution save us? What did Christ say? Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23. What do we do, brethren? when we can see that our freedoms are being endangered to do this very work and the door is open but there are forces extant that are trying to close it and prophetically speaking there will come a time when our part of the work is over and god's faithful people will go into a place of safety and then The work will continue with the two witnesses. But what do we do in the time between now and then when we can see the vice tightening? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23, he told his disciples, "...when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes." You know, this is something the apostles had to face. When they were persecuted in one, they went to the next. If they were persecuted in that one, they went to the next. What does that mean for us? Maybe it means getting on different channels. Maybe it means getting on different platforms or stations or someday literally moving where we have more freedom to do the work. But one way or the other, we can see the writing on the wall. And at some point, our our Part of the work will be finished. But as long as we have an open door, we must keep going through it. Notice in John chapter 9, John chapter 9, and as long as God is giving us time and giving us resources and giving us freedom to do the work, now we've got to, as they used to say, make hay while the sun shines, right? We've got to do it. John chapter 9 and verse 4. Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Our job is to preach, make disciples, teach what Christ commands, baptize those who repent while it is day. What if no one responds? Let's turn back to. Deuteronomy chapter 4. How would you like to be Noah, you know, in, in that work? For more than a, for about a century, be a preacher of righteousness? How many co-workers did he have? How many thousands of subscribers were responding? How about his personal correspondence department? He had a big zero at the end of that work. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been? Distressing? And yet he still accomplished his purpose. What if many don't respond? Well, we want to imprint a message in those who hear. So that sometime down the line, they're going to remember it. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he's talking about how if they would act corruptly and, and disobey him, he would... Uh, they would utterly perish from the land verse 26 and verse 27 and the Lord will scatter you among the people and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you and there you will serve gods the work of men's hands wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul when you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days. When you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, he will not forsake you nor destroy you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. There will be some who go into the tribulation and only respond and repent at that point. But our job is to try to help them to have something in their head that will trigger And they will respond. Brethren, what do we do? What does it mean for us individually? Well, I have ten points in conclusion for things we can do. No, not really. Just a couple couple of takeaways. As we think of our blessings, as we think of financial blessings, and as we think of Religious freedom. What do we do? What's what's required of us? What does God want us to be doing? While this unique and miraculous time is open. Number one, pray for the work. Pray for the work. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. This is nothing new. We're reminded of this all the time. But it's what we need to do. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice Paul wrote. To the brethren in the church in Colossae, he said, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Did Paul have constraints on him? Will the work, as time goes on, have, you know, a vice? <laughs> That is seeking to close that door. And yet he still did everything he possibly could. Even with the chains. And he he asked the brethren to pray. We must pour our hearts in the work. With thanksgiving. For what God is doing on this earth. Praying for more laborers. As Christ told his disciples. For the work is great number two we also must faithfully contribute to the work matthew chapter 25 matthew chapter 25 if any of us are living in a place in space where we have been blessed financially why have we been blessed is it just to enjoy it for ourselves or is it because god has opened this window of time and opportunity? for us to do this work in the end time and contribute financially. Matthew 25 and verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Who is the one who puts food in the storehouse other than those who contribute financially, brethren. Every single one of us, young or old, we can start our children when they're young, helping them to learn to contribute because of their blessings, because we don't deserve the blessings we have. So many people have lived and died throughout history and have never known a fraction of of what we have. And yet, here we are. Number three, final point. That we must stand up and be a pillar in the house of God. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 3 <clears throat> and verse 8. We have a unique opportunity. And look at what he gives to the, the, the words that he says to the Philadelphian era. And if we're continuing to go through that door, we have an opportunity to be a a remnant of that work that is continuing that work today. He says, verse 8 of Revelation 3, See, I have set before you an open door, no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. Pillars stand and support. Pillars give strength and stability. Pillars support even though they're not always seen or heard. Have you noticed in a house... Much of the support of the house is behind the walls, behind the paint, is not seen. And yet without that wood in the house or steel beams or whatever, that is not seen, that is behind the walls, the roof would cave in. There's so many ways that we serve and, and strengthen and bolster one another. You don't have to be a minister to do that all we have to do is show up, right? All we have to do is what we heard in the sermonette of loving one another. All we have to do is to be there to help and serve and be faithful to one another and strengthen one another and take our place among the pillars. Every time we reach out to someone in need, that's a pillar. Every time at a, at an occasion with outsiders, our neighbors, or tomorrow's world presentation, or at the job, or at school, whatever. Every time we have an opportunity to shine as a light of reflecting God's truth and reflecting God's power, reflecting His ways, His commandments in love, you know, not beating it into other people, but showing the way He is, That's being a pillar. Every time we pray for one another and fervently ask God to intervene for one another, that's being a pillar. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 7. We just observed Thanksgiving in, in the U.S. And I think for a lot of people it was just another meal. Well, the the biggest meal they've had all year, but other than that, just another meal, right? But I I think there's a very fitting passage here in Deuteronomy about our time, and I think we can relate it to what we're talking about today. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land of brooks of water, of fountains, of springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper when you have eaten and are full. Brethren, can we find a better passage relating to thanksgiving? When you have eaten and are full, bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them and your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Brethren, some of our leaders from the past set aside this day to thank God for the blessings that we have. They didn't understand the full truth of what God has been doing here in this land and around the world because of Abraham's faithfulness and God's faithfulness to him. But they were right to thank God for his blessings. And when we know even more specifically just how miraculous it has been that you and I have an opportunity to worship him and be a part of his work, we realize there's much to do and very little time to do it. Brethren, let's, as we have opportunity, because we are blessed, because we are free, but not just for ourselves, but rather for doing the work, let's make sure that we are preparing the world for the return of Jesus Christ. That's the most, that's the best thing we could do, to show God we are thankful. We are thankful. We are grateful the blessings he showers upon us.